Welcome again to the Comic Book Historian Podcast. I'm Alex Grant, and I'm here with Jim Thompson. Jim, how are you doing today? Good. Great to see that face of yours again. So we have a special guest today. We have Trina Robbins, who is a seminal figure in comics history and definitely a giant as far as 20th century comic books and a 21st century comic book historian. And so, Trina, thank you so much for joining us today. Jim, take it away. Hi, Trina. Hi. I I wanted to start at the very beginning with when you were born and where you grew up. Could you tell us a little bit about that? I was born in Brooklyn. I grew up in Queens. What did your father and your mother do? My mother was a school teacher who taught me to read at the age of four, which is the most wonderful thing anyone has ever done for me, except, of course, give birth to me, which she also did. My father had been a tailor, but he had Parkinson's disease. And from most of my memory, he couldn't sew any. Well, he did sew at home, but he couldn't sew professionally anymore. But he was also a writer. He wrote in Yiddish. Mm. And in those days, there were lots of Yiddish language newspapers in New York. And he wrote for them. He wrote articles for them. And as I'm sure you know, he wrote a book. Yes. He was also a chicken farmer. (laughs) No, he wanted to be a chicken farmer. Tom's River, New Jersey, as I later found out, was a hotbed of Jewish chicken farms. And he did own land there. And he wanted to move there and open a chicken farm. But of course, it was really pretty impossible uh, since my mother really supported the family and she was a teacher. And, you know, she could really not, you know, commute from Tom's River, New Jersey to Queens, where she taught. So really, all that I remember is that he had a book on chicken diseases, and it was <laughs> color. He saw, you know, these diseased chickens in full color with bright red sores, and wow. I was fascinated. I used to pour over that book. I was fascinated by the pictures. Oh, that's interesting. You mentioned you being an early reader, and I've noticed that in most of the interviews we've done with comic creators, Alex got it with Jim Steranko and also with Rick Marshall, they all comment on being extremely early readers. Do you think that has something to do with an early attraction to comic books as well? I don't know, but smart kids are usually early readers and smart kids read comics. So there's a connection there. There you go. I like that. I like that, too. That's good. Which brings me to my next question. When did you start reading comics, and what comics were you reading? Well, at first, my mother brought them home. You had to cross two streets to get to the corner candy store that sold the comics. So when I was too little to cross the two streets on my own, my mother would bring comics home for me. They were the nice little kid comics, you know, like Gold Medal. Was it Gold Medal? that did those great comics. Well, you know, like they printed Pogo and they printed Animal Comics. Was it gold medal? Someone tell me, please. I'm not sure. Gold Key. Gold Key key did that. Yeah, Dell and Gold Key, yes. Yes, and they had great comics for kids. And my mother approved of them because in the lettering, in the speech balloons, they used caps and small letters. Right rather than all caps. And as a teacher, she really didn't like the idea of the speech balloons that were all caps because that was not proper. So the first ones I read were Gold Key Comics that my mother approved of. Do you mean Dell Comics? Was it Dell, not Gold Key? Probably Dell, because uh, Gold Key was more of a 60s transformation of Dell Comics. Oh, okay. So I bet, I bet they were Dell yeah. comics. Yeah. And yeah. I remember Dell, they were very wholesome and they had that slogan, yes. Dell comics are good comics. So that that's the generation of comics you were probably reading. Yes. I remember they had animal comics. They had our gang comics. They definitely had Pogo. Oh, that's great. Our gang was also Walt Kelly, just like Pogo was. Yeah. So I was reading Pogo. I was reading Walt Kelly at an early age, yes. So was that in the 50s then or uh, 40s. later 40s? In the 40s, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, mm-hmm. in the 40s. There you go. Mm-hmm. Now, that would have been before you graduated after that at some point to the Atlas comics, Millie the Model and those. You were oh, reading was, those first. Yeah. They weren't Atlas. They were timely. Yes. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. That was when I finally was old enough, about 10, I guess, maybe 9 or 10, old enough to cross the two streets and buy comics on my own with my allowance. 
And basically, I would buy any comic that had a woman or a girl on the cover right. in control, not tied to a chair and being rescued, but in control as, like as the protagonist of the comics. I was never interested in the male superheroes. I found them unbelievably boring. You were a great lover of Captain Marvel. Yes, he was the only male superhero I liked. And he was, of course, Mary Marvel's brother, which is how I, I met him, because first I met Mary Marvel. He was drawn in such an accessible way, really. C.C. Beck, that clean, clean, accessible styles, very warm and very funny. Mm -hmm. And you mm -hmm. later became friends with C.C. Beck, didn't you? I, I did, and I treasure, I treasure that friendship. That's wonderful. Can you tell us a little bit about him as a person? I met him in 1977, my first San Diego Comic-Con. And he was so lovely. He had brought a guitar. And I remember him singing these. They were supposed to be kind of like off-color body, body ballads. But they were really very tame, of course. And they're very sweet and very funny. And we just made friends. And he had a circle of fans that he corresponded with. And I became part of that circle. Oh, nice. Now, you've never gotten to draw Mary Marvel or do any work, except for an occasional cover or something. Would you have liked to have gotten to do something with those characters? Oh, back in the days when I drew, I would have loved to have drawn Mary Marvel, sure. Yeah. And did you bring a lot of that Mary Marvel and Millie the Model into your Misty comics that you did in the 80s? Like, would, would you say a lot of that was influenced into there? Or, or was it more your own life experiences that would go into that? Well, Misty was definitely an offshoot of Millie the model because she was Millie's niece. Right. And that was continuity that got it into Marvel Comics. Right. But uh, Mary Marvel, in the 90s and early 21st century, I collaborated with Ann Timmons on a series called Go Girl. It was about a teenage flying heroine. Mm -hmm. And um, she's very influenced by Mary Marvel. I see. That's nice. Now, you were also doing the Timely Girls. There's also um, uh, Katie Keene as well, correct? Katie was not Timely. No, no, Katie no, I was, know. She comes. In but that yes, time, yeah. Of course, yeah, you know, everyone who is now a certain age, all the women loved Katie Keene. I mean, this is an interesting connection, but I actually have been taking Yiddish classes. Oh, yeah. And they're not just Yiddish classes, but they're senior Yiddish classes. And they're not just senior Yiddish classes, but they're senior LGBT Yiddish classes. Oh, wow. At the LGBT Senior Center. You know, it's a great class and everyone's friends and, and we'll start talking about, we'll get off topic, right? And somebody started talking about the old comics that they remembered. The teacher started, he liked The Little King. He talked about Arad Sago's The Little King. And we started talking about comics. And I mentioned Katie Keene. And all of the women went, oh, Katie Keene, yes. <laughs> you know, every little girl in the 40s and 50s loved Katie Keene through the wow. 60s, the early 60s. It was a real cultural phenomenon with the women readers at the time. That's great. Girl readers. Girl readers, oh, yeah. I'm sure women read it, too. And you were attracted also to the paper dolls aspect of it as well. Do you think that's when you started to think about fashion was partly because of or in connection well, I, with I, those? I always loved paper dolls. I made my own. I had brown paper grocery bags filled with my paper dolls. And I would constantly design more clothes for them and they were always in the same pose. I would redraw the dolls as I got better at drawing, but they would always be in the same pose so they could wear all the clothes I had designed for them. We were talking about the paper dolls and the clothing, and so you were interested in the fashion aspect of these comics as well. That's correct? Yes. And what about other women in comics at that time? I know you have a great love for Fiction House. Yes. They published during the war. And afterwards, too, really, in the late 40s, they published more women cartoonists than any of the other companies. And that's during the war when it, everyone was publishing women cartoonists, all the comic book companies, because the guys were all fighting. They still published more than any of the others. And the best, these women were great. Stay with us. We'll be right back. My name is Koji. And I'm Michelle. And this 
This is the Japanese America podcast. So this is where we look at all things Japanese American. We will bring alive the history, culture, and people that make up this diverse community. In this month's episode, we'll examine Koji's unique family history. To help bring this story alive, we brought on actor and comedian Derek Mew. He was reported to be extremely pro-Japanese and anti-American in sentiment. Her husband was taken into custody by the military authorities under a warrant authorized by the Secretary of War, who was his enemy of the United States. He was my grandfather on my dad's side. To hear more stories about Japanese America, you can listen to this podcast anywhere you normally download your podcast. So were you reading Fiction House as a kid, or did that come later when you were doing research? You know, as soon as I could discover comics, I was buying, I loved their Jungle comics. I was a huge Sheena fan. I was buying the Jungle comics. My mother was a little alarmed because, you know, the girls were kind of sexy. But, you know, by today's standards, by today's standards, they're just pretty girls. You know, you've seen bad girl comics and how horrendous they are. But even though my mother was alarmed, she never censored me. Oh, good. Now, this opened you up to a lot of different genres, too, because Fiction House was great at covering a lot of different... Oh, my God, their science fiction title, Planet Comics, yes. Now, I have been looking at other companies during the same period. I'm finding a lot of women, surprising number of women in Ace and in Harvey and some of those as well. Timely Comics. And Timely Comics, yes. Who was working at Timely? Oh, wow. Starting in 1944 with the first Miss America magazine, which, as you know, was a girl's mag that also had comics in it. You had Miss America and also Patsy Walker originating in 1944, drawn by Pauline Loth. Also drawn by Christopher Rule, who, in my opinion, is one of the greatest, greatest cartoonists who ever lived. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I guess it's a very small Christopher Rule Appreciation Society, but I certainly belong to it. So that was 44. Then in 45, Ruth Atkinson drew the first year of Patsy Walker comics. See, originally Patsy Walker was in Miss America comics as a one just one comic in the right, magazine. Right. As a one show. And by yeah. 45, she was so successful that they did Patsy Walker comics. That's when they started Millie the Model comics. And Ruth Atkinson drew the first year of Patsy Walker. She drew the first Millie the Model comic book. And also in that first year of Patsy Walker drawn by Ruth Atkinson, there would be three Patsy Walker stories drawn by her and one Patsy Walker story contributed by Fran Hopper. It was practically an all-woman deal there. Yeah. And why did that change? What caused women to almost virtually disappear from a lot of these companies? Guys came back from the war and they wanted their old jobs back. That's exactly what happened. But they were still, you know, like the timely teen titles from the late 40s and 50s. I I loved them. You know, they were drawn by guys at that point, but they were still... They were vibrant and, and alive and exciting and, and about teenage girls. And really, that continued. It, they started falling apart in the 60s, just about when Marvel, you know, started its superhero renaissance. And they just devoted themselves because the superheroes were doing so well. They devoted themselves to the superheroes and threw the girl titles under the bus. Huh. Now- I'm going to skip ahead just for a minute, just because of what you're saying. You had given up comics for a while, but you came back in terms of EC comics because of the, mm-hmm. your love for the science fiction uh, books and because of Mad. Now, they did not have very many women working for them, correct? No, didn't. Marie Severin, the colorist, and that was it. Just as far as the sci-fi, so you were saying you were reading Planet Comics, and then also you're reading the EC Comics, and you got involved with sci-fi fandom, right, in the later 50s. Um, there was a Hugo Award-nominated fanzine Habakkuk. Am I saying it correctly? Yes. Would you have had considered yourself a sci-fi fan by this point? Oh, after- yes. Oh, my God. I discovered science fiction at about 14, and... Except for what I had to read for school, uh-huh. I would say that from 14 to about 18, all I read was science fiction. Oh, I see. What was it about science fiction that you liked? Was it about 
like the technological aspect or was it more like they would put social things within a fantastic setting, social discussions in a fantastic setting? What, what was it about sci-fi that drew you to it? Well, really, it was everything. I mean, it was mind opening. I was the only kid in my, well, maybe one of two kids in my school who read science fiction, you know, and they thought we were weird. You know, science fiction was was just weird kids read that stuff. And it was completely mind opening. Right. You know, the concept. I mean, now they're so corny and we know them so well. You know, what if you go back through time and and marry your husband or, or your father yeah. or whatever? Right. They're so obvious now, but they were just mind blowing in those days because they were new. That's true. Discovering Bradbury, you know, and, and like, again, it's, you know, we, we know this stuff now and it's old hat. But at the time, you know, wow, what if the Martians were big eyed, wonderful people? But then we came and we destroyed them all with our diseases. Wow. You know, I mean, this was amazing stuff to me because it was new. Yeah, that's great. How did you get involved with the sci-fi fanzines? Did, was it through like fan letters of, of uh, comics? Or how did that happen? My two best friends I met through a letter to a, a science fiction magazine when I was 14. I just wrote a letter saying, you know, are there any other fans, you know, in Queens? And I, I'm 14 and I'm blonde and I have green eyes. Uh -huh. And two boys <laughs> immediately called me, my, my friends David and Marty. And they became my best friends, teenagers my age. And we would meet in David. David's father had fixed up the basement with like a, a ping pong table and stuff, hoping that, that David would, you know, be a regular boy and play ping pong. But we never used the ping pong table. And we just hung out and talked about science fiction. Oh, that's great. You know, you started, you said when you were around 14, it, it's probably not a coincidence that your mom asked you to or told you to stop buying comics the year before that approximately yeah so so science fiction came up partly because you weren't allowed to read comics anymore is that right I was forbidden no no you mustn't say what aren't allowed my mother simply said to me you're in high school now you're a teenager comics are kid stuff why don't you stop reading comics she never never my parents were very permissive but I simply went, oh, yeah, OK, you're right, and stopped reading comics. And then you came back when people showed you Mad Magazine and, and the EC stuff. No, I didn't come back to comics. I just came back to Mad Comics and EC. That's different, you know? Mm -hmm. Yes. Mm -hmm. And then Wally Wood was one of your favorites. You later got to meet him, what, in the late 60s? Yes. What was your impression of Wally when you met? Was he a nice guy? Was he? Uh, what was your impression with that? Wally was a very nice guy. He had a studio where younger people, you know, young guys were assisting him. And I could have it. At that certain point, I moved to San Francisco in 1970. Mm -hmm. If I had stayed and not, you know, I could have been part of that group. Oh, and wow. That I couldn't have, you know, three lives and in one of them be Woody's assistant. Mm -hmm. That's amazing. Before that, before you moved, your first comics uh, were for the East Village Other, an underground yes. newspaper in New York City, yes. and they published the uh, Goth Blimp Works, which was a comic you worked on in 69. Was this your intro to underground comics? Tell us about that. Well, I was still living in Los Angeles in 66 when someone showed me the East Village Other. Every major city at that point, and College towns, too, had one underground newspaper. In L.A., ours was the L.A. Free Press. And I did hang out with the L.A. Free Press crowd. And I even did one four-panel comic for them. But then someone showed me these Village Other. And they had comics. And their comics were, well, the word underground comics didn't exist yet. I called them hip comics. Because oh, okay. they talked about our culture, counterculture, mm -hmm. rather than short-haired superheroes punching each other out, you know? Right, right. Um, it was something I could relate to. In particular, I've never forgotten, there was this one full-page comic called Gentle's Trip Out, and it was signed Panzeca, and it was totally, totally psychedelic. It didn't really have a story or anything. It was just very psychedelic, and I thought, this is what I want to do. And, you know, like, like two years later, when I was in New York, I met Panzeca, who turned out to be a woman. So oh. this was really maybe my first comics influence was a woman. 
Oh, that's awesome. Trina, I want to go back to the earlier years just for a little bit. We were talking about comic books, but we we haven't talked about comic strips. And I know that you were also an avid reader of, of comic strips during this time. We haven't talked about your family's politics, but my understanding is they were a fairly liberal family living in a community of more uh, conservative people. Very left-wing family living in an extremely bigoted right-wing neighborhood. And in fact, you had to sneak out to read Hearst newspapers. Is that correct? That's right. He wouldn't allow the Hearst newspapers in the house because they were fascist rags. And of course, they were fascist rags, but they had great comics. Hearst had great taste in comics. (laughs) So you would actually go out and take someone else's in the mornings and read it and then put the newspapers back? Oh, that was the Daily News. No, the Ah. Journal American was the Hearst paper, and they had the best comics. And I would read that over the houses of my friends when I was visiting my friends. I would read their Journal Americans. The Daily News really actually had terrible comics, but they had Brenda Starr. That was the only one that I was interested in, the Daily News. And my landlady subscribed to the Daily News. So I would go downstairs and pick up the paper when it landed at her door and bring it upstairs and unfold it and read Brenda Starr and then refold it and put it back down in front of my landlady's door. So you were reading comic strips that did have some political commentary like Barnaby and, and Pogo were two of your, two of your favorites. Was, yes. Well, of course, Pogo ran in the post, which was left wing and Barnaby ran in. Someone has to write a book about this really interesting newspaper called, it it went through three changes. First it was the PM, then it was the Compass, and then it was the Star. Mm. But they all had the same really, really, really good writers, really classic writers, and really good taste. And, And they always folded because they wouldn't take advertising because they were so pure. And that was what my father brought home. He brought home the PM. When it was the star, I think not the PM or the compass, but when it was the star, it carried spirit Sunday strips. The spirit I Sunday was going to ask you about that. Yes. 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 And, and they had like the best comics. You know, Barnaby, yes. Barnaby was just amazing. And I think it might have been the compass that Will Kelly was actually the art director on. But it was one of those. But so there's this amazing phenomenon of this newspaper that went through three name changes and three different owners, but was always really the same newspaper. And why hasn't someone written a book about this? Interesting. Now, you mentioned Eisner. You were also a, a tremendous fan of the spirit. I loved the spirit Sunday sections. Yes. God, yes. And they had great women characters, too, didn't they? They did. They did. His women were so strong. Even if the spirit was the protagonist, there was always a strong woman in there. And they were great characters. Such a variety. At the time, they had such individual personalities. Yes. So then, as we said, you had gotten into science fiction and you were hanging out with some new friends but also because it was a community, you were invited to New York and were part of a, a group that also included older men that were inviting basically the 15-year-old girls to come and, and join and talk about science fiction? I met these people at, at a local convention at a New York Comic Con. Maybe my, not, not Comic Con, Science Fiction Con, probably my first science fiction con. And there were all these people and they were, yeah, they were all older guys in their 30s. And uh, Marty, my friend Marty and I, we were like 15. We were invited to hang out with them. And it was kind of, well, nice, a little weird, you know, because, I mean, nobody tried anything. I promise you that. But there was a lot of innuendos running around, you know, and I didn't get them. They went over my head. I didn't know what was going on. Were you reading science fiction digests and pulps, too? Yes, yes, yes. I like Yes, the pulps were great. But I also read uh, fantasy and science fiction and Galaxy. Galaxy, yeah. Okay, that's cool. Were you able to, like, tell, you know, if that was a Wally Wood picture or if that or... Woody was so recognizable. First of all, he was the first artist, cartoon artist, I was aware of because Uh in those days, nobody was credited. But Woody would sign his strips, you know, with that, that fancy gothic wood 
So yeah. I knew what was by Wally Wood. Oh, that's cool. Interesting. So then with the sci-fi con- conventions with these older guys and stuff, it was not just about comics. It was also about pulps and magazines and just, just the genre in general, it sounds like. Yes. Yes. Oh, okay. You met Harlan Ellison around this time. At a science fiction convention in New York, yes. And the two of you became friends? I dated him. He oh. was uh, five years older than me. First thing he did when he met me was ask me how tall I was. And then when it turned out that I was shorter than him, he asked me out. <laughs> I was so, 16 and he was 21. Oh, okay. Uh, so what was he like as a 21-year-old? Was he the same as he was later in life? He was the same. Harlan has always been the same as he always has been. Yes, yes. He had just sold his first book, which was, I think, the original name was Rumble, but then they, when they reprinted it, they gave it a classier title, uh, something about the city. I don't remember exactly, but it was the book where he talked about running with a teenage gang in disguise, and he insisted it had really happened, but I didn't really believe him. And you reconnected with him later in Los Angeles when you came out there. Yes, he, yes out there. Yes, he was in my caress somewhere. Wherever I went, there was Harlan. You have a tiny movie connection with him, too, correct? Yes. That awful movie, The Oscar, which even Harlan <laughs> agreed was the worst movie ever made. He had a character named Trina, played by Edie Adams. And he said he had based it on me. So Edie wanted to meet me since she was going to be playing the character. So we met her on this, in the, at the studio for lunch. And she was wonderful. And I don't think the character was the least bit like me, but that's okay. (laughs) (laughs) But the name is there. The name is there. So you stayed involved in science fiction. You finished high school, and then you went to college for one year. I dropped out of two very good colleges, yes. Were those in New York? One was Queens College, Uh and the other was Cooper Union that was in Manhattan. Cooper Union was the art school. I see. What year was that when you left there, Cooper (laughs) Union? Uh, that would be the late 50s. Oh, okay. Okay. I gotcha. So then in the 60s, then you're working mostly in the, well, the East Village other and all that was 69, late 60s. 66. So, now yes, I came 66. to New York in 66 and almost immediately was published in the East Village other. What prompted your move to San Francisco in 1970? The underground comic scene. It was just a new art form. It was very revolutionary. The idea that you could do comics that were not Spider-Man or Batman, you know, mm-hmm. that were counterculture. It was a brand new art form, and it was very exciting, and it was very vigorous and, mm-hmm. and very alive. The comic books were coming out of San Francisco. That's where, where they were coming from. Mm-hmm. So it was like the mecca of underground comics, and and there was like really, uh, I call it a lemming-like migration of underground cartoonists from New York to San Francisco right. during starting around 1969 and I through see. 1970 and 71. Right. That all kind of coincides, right, <laughs> with the movement of the late 60s, like Woodstock and all that stuff, right? That's all, yes. does that, all, that all just kind of goes together, doesn't it? Yes, it does. Yeah. And, and then at that point, you worked on a San Francisco-based underground publisher it Ain't Me, Babe, and a, uh, and a comic of the same name, which was an all-woman comic book. Is that correct? Well, kind of a little bit-ish. It Ain't Me, Babe was the first. In those days, we didn't call it feminism yet. We called it women's liberation. It Ain't Me, Babe was the first women's liberation newspaper in okay. America. And it came out of Berkeley, of course. And I saw maybe the first or second issue, I don't remember, but a very early issue, mm-hmm. and was very excited and contacted them and wound up drawing for them. Roughly every three weeks, we would have paste-up night, and we would just, I would do little spot illustrations right there, and mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. for the, the articles. And I also did a comic for the back page, and I did covers also. You had a, an easier time working with underground newspapers than you had with, with underground comics. You know, what happened was women's liberation happened. And along around the same time as women's liberation, 
uh, underground comics, it was still a very small group of people. Right. But underground comics started getting, a, and it was all guys. You have mm-hmm. to understand that with the women, it was me and one other woman, Willie Mendez. And uh, the comics suddenly took a turn, I would say around 69, took a turn for the extremely misogynist. Right. And you have to right. understand that there was no comics code in underground comics. These guys could draw whatever they wanted. And what was coming out of their ids was an amazing hatred of women, really vicious, violent uh, misogyny. I had gotten turned on to what we called women's liberation. And I think even if I hadn't gotten turned on to women's liberation, I would have, you know, still reacted the same way because this stuff was horrifying. Right. I objected to it. And the guys were extremely threatened by women's liberation. My God, they were so threatened. It was ridiculous. Um, so basically, I was shut out. I mean, there was a boys club and I was definitely shut out. This was driven by Robert Crumb then, this kind of shift of the id toward uh, toward this, those kind of comics? Well, I hate to pick on Crumb, but it was kind of, you know, because he was... He really, you know, he was a brilliant artist and a brilliant cartoonist. And he kind of became the god, the god of underground comics. Right. And what he did was sacrosanct, you know, and if you dared to criticize him, you were burned at the stake in the in the marketplace. Did he know about your objections to it? Of course he did. He did. Right. And then did he give you any interpersonal reaction to it or was it more systematic with the underground comics and just the people that were in it well he always said that well i'm being honest and this is what is in my head and i'm just showing it honestly but that doesn't really make it you know racists are honest too you know right right i get that you actually lived with his sister for a while she was my roommate yes Right after your child had been born and she had a, a young child as well? They moved in when I think my daughter was about nine months old. And how long did y'all live together? Uh, we probably lasted about a year, but it wasn't a good living situation because unfortunately her son, who was just a little bit older and bigger than my daughter Casey, she wasn't mean to him. She wasn't horrible to him or anything like that. She never abused him, but she practiced a kind of benign neglect. She just kind of left him alone to, you know, wander around the house and get into things. And and I think he was reacting. Uh, He felt, I mean, because she wasn't really giving him active love. He was reacting very badly and really the most rage-filled baby I had ever seen. And and he took it out on, on my daughter, who was younger and smaller. And it just was a bad living situation. So we finally split up. I always really liked Sandy and tried to remain friends with her. And you included her story somewhat in a comic you did later on? I love the way you're asking these questions, you know, because you're getting them all wrong, even though you've read my book and you know everything. Um, <laughs> that was the first issue of Comics in 1972. I did the story of Sandy becoming a lesbian. Sandy comes out. And I didn't know it at the time, but it turns out it was the first comic about an out lesbian ever drawn. Oh, wow. So what did I get wrong? I, I thought I was I was getting it pretty right. Oh, but that's OK. <laughs> OK. <laughs> <laughs> nice try, Jim. Nice try. All right. Uh, so, you know, I'm curious. Tell us about 1973 Berkeley Comic Con. You made some paraphernalia for that event. Paraphernalia? I, I guess yeah. I did uh, T-shirts. Is that what you mean? T-shirts. Yeah. Okay. Cool. And tell us about oh, that yeah, that yes, comic convention. Did some ads for the comic con. Yeah, that's, that's right. Yes. About. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, it was great. Women's comics had started in '72. Two weeks after we started women's comics, we discovered that there were these two women in Southern California who were also doing an all-woman book, and theirs was had a much more outrageous title than ours. It was called Tits and Clits. Right. And right. That's right. We didn't know about each other, and yet, yet here, within two weeks of each other. You know, two different groups of women from either side of California were producing these all-women comics. Really, I, you know, I know that it's it's silly, but, I mean, was it the water? Was it something in the water? You know, <laughs> so we all met. We all met in 73 and got along beautifully. You know, that was Lynn Shevely and Joyce Farmer. You also did a all-women's comic 
based out of France as well, correct? Oh, I contribute. See, that's what I mean about how you're getting them wrong. You did an all woman's <laughs> comic based out of France. Sounds I, as though I edited an all woman French no, no. comic. And of course I didn't. I contributed. Yes. I contributed to Anana, which was the French. I've been told that they were inspired by women's comics, that it was there the French go. equivalent of women's comics, but it was really so much better because all the European artists were better than us. How long were you actually in France for an extended period of time? We have have something called called the postal system so that you can mail them the art. You don't have to go to France (laughs) to deliver it by hand. Okay, but you were in France at at some point. I was in France in 73. Yes, I did. And visited. Actually, I did not visit them in 73. I visited them in 77 when I went to Europe with my daughter, my seven-year-old daughter. Okay. And you met a lot of the great French artists yes. at the time. Yes. Uh, Girard yes. and others. Yes. Stayed with Jean-Pierre Dionnet, the publisher of Metal Erlant, and his wife, Jeannique, who was the editor of Anana. Oh, nice. Yeah, 70 sounds like a really interesting time. Now, did you go back to New York for a while when in 74 you told me, I remember at the Cartoon Art Museum, we chatted a bit, that you went to Marvel and you met Stanley with your daughter in 74. I New York, back to New York periodically. There were fantastic airline deals in those days where you could go round trip for $199, things like that. And I would stay with friends. Often I would stay with Flo Steinberg, who was a very dear friend. Oh, really? That's great. Yeah, because she did her own underground, what, Big Apple Comics? She at, did at, Big Apple Comics. In 1975. Yeah, so. yeah. Yeah, that's that's awesome. That's a cool, I didn't know about that connection between you two. You did And um, tell the audience about when you met Stan Lee with Marvel, and he introduced you to comics like Night Nurse and things like that. Tell, tell the audience about that scenario. Actually, I met Stan Lee in 1966 when I came to New York from Los Angeles, And I visited Marvel to do a write-up on them for the L.A. Free Press. And they were great. I mean, they were just very welcoming. You could never do that now. You know, you'd have to make appointments. But I just walked in and said, hi, I'd like to interview Stan Lee and the, you know, and Marvel Comics to write about Marvel for the Los Angeles Free Press. And and I was made welcome. And Roy Thomas took me to lunch. And and Stan great. And, you know, it was really a remarkable time. So then was this kind of your personal introduction then to the the Marvel people was around this time then? Yeah. And then Dennis Kitchen, he published a few magazines under the Curtis Publications for Marvel, the comics book. Comics book. Which was like the mainstream Marvel underground magazine, kind of a conflicted category. But you did some excerpts because when I was researching you a bit, I, I got some of those and I read through them. And you had some Panthea comics that were in yes, there? Yes, I did. Uh-huh. Yeah. So tell us about, like, were you doing those from San Francisco or were you in Manhattan doing those? No, I was in San Francisco. Again, I call your attention to the United States postal system. So there you we, go. We, just, things. we didn't have to be there. That was amazing. I mean, because they were paying $100 a page, which was incredible for us underground cartoonists. Oh, I see. I, we were happy to get $25 a page if we even got paid. Right. Yeah, the Panthea, I read that. And it's just the origin story of Panthea was just uh, something else. Because I guess a woman or a girl was kidnapped into the wild or she was lost in the wild. And then she grows up and makes makes love to a lion or a Her plane or... crashes. And yeah, she's the, the only survivor. She's a baby girl. Right. And she's brought up a lion and becomes his mate and, and gives <laughs> birth to Panthea. Yeah, who is part lion, part woman. Yeah, what a what an origin. When I read, <laughs> I was like, this is, I've never read anything like that before. So definitely got my attention. So then um, what was your impression of the comics book? Why did that not last more than three issues? I really don't know why it didn't last more than, did, was it only three issues? I thought it had four issues. There was three under Curtis. Then he put together four and uh, five, I think, okay. on his own. Dennis Kitchen did. Okay. Okay. You know, you can get the collected comics book. It's been published, all, the entire comics book. I don't know why it didn't last. It's too bad. It was great while it was going on. But it was fun. And then you mentioned the Tits and Clits Underground Comics, and you worked on that in 1977, no, or you she, contributed? She didn't work on that, did she? I was a contributor. No, yeah. I did contribute. Yeah, yeah, okay. she did. In 1977, 
And the mission seemed to be underground, but as sexuality from a woman's perspective. Yes. Which yes. was different, right, from the late 60s, early 70s, from the male sexual perspective. Well, I'll say. And I looked at some of those pages, and they're very classy. Did you feel that that magazine achieved the goal of adequately viewing things from the reverse approach? Gender-wise? To a certain degree, yes. I mean, the guys didn't want to talk about women's sexuality. You know, it, the same thing with women's comics. I mean, we dealt with subjects that the guys would not be the least bit interested in talking about. You know, the first issue had a comic called A Teenage Abortion. She was still illegal. And we talked about menstruation. We talked about subjects that men didn't just didn't talk about, you know. Right. Which I think are important to talk about. I mean, because yeah. uh, those are real things that they should be out there. Of course. Now, you were more involved in women's comics than you were in Tits and Clits. I was an occasional contributor to Tits and Clits. I think I right. may have contributed to two issues. There you go. And you, you were actually an editor, at least for one issue of women's comics. Two issues. Two issues. But there was comments made that you were almost in charge of it, that you you were the de facto editor for more than that. I was never, never I, in charge of women's comics. I was never the de facto editor. We I had a rotating that. editorship. We had a rotating editorship so that no one could be a dictator. And in fact, starting in 1982, we had two editors, a double editorship, so that even even then nobody could be the supreme law. Mm, okay. I understand that, but people have said that you were. Well, this is simply not true. But you know what I'm talking about. Yes. Maybe Jim's saying is that did you have to make some executive decisions every now and then? Yeah. It was I mean, just some had, of the other people on there later we on. Collective. We really were a collective. Every month we would meet and people from the first issue on and the first issue, we solicited submissions and we got them. And every month we would meet and we would sit on the floor surrounded by submissions and go through them and offer our opinions. The editor would have the last say for sure, mm, but okay. all had say. And, you know, a lot of it was simply unanimous. If someone was simply awful, we all felt the same way. But every now and then we'd get something really exciting, something new, something that, you know, showed real talent. And it really was Although maybe the editor had the last say, it was a collective decision. Talk about the publishing of that. This was this was being done. Who was financing this? My last guest, Ron Turner, was the publisher mm. of Last Guest Comics, last guest. and he had published it in Me Babe Comics, which was the very very first all woman comic book in the universe, as far as I know. I don't know about Pluto, but I produced that one. That one, I completely I take credit for that. I completely thought it up and produced it. Nice. Who were some of the men during this period that really did support women cartoonists and comics? I know you've talked about Vaughn Bode as somebody that really helped. Vaughn Bode. Yes, Vaughn Bode, sorry. Yes, he was very supportive. Well, you know, like I said, there was a boys club, and he wasn't part of the boys club either. I think he felt very shut out. I think those guys resented him. Maybe he was just too talented for them. I don't know. But they did resent him. And there were other guys. In 1972, my partner was Leslie Cabarga, who was was a cartoonist, underground cartoonist at the time, contributed mm -hmm. to comics book. And he was, of course, supportive. I mean, I wouldn't be living, have been living with him if he weren't supportive. There were lots of supportive guys. Cool. But and then that core, there was that core of boys club. And there were some that seemed to go out of their way to leave you out of a convention list and to leave you out of projects and panels. And you mentioned Roger Brand several times. Yes, in the it, was, it was almost uncanny how much he went out of his way to not introduce me to anyone and to leave me out. It was just, it was really kind of mind-blowing. Yes. I was reading where, I think it was Spain Rodriguez and... I hope I don't get it wrong because you know, you'll fuss at me. But Spain Rodriguez <laughs> said that they weren't trying to actually freeze you out because you were women. It was just that your stuff was sweeter and they wanted to be vulgar and gross. That's exactly what he said. That fact, I got that was it right. Nice, yeah, to me, that was a great compliment because, first of all, that was when we were co-teaching a class back in the early 21st century in Chico on comics. I was teaching the writing and he was teaching the drawing. 
we would have separate classes, but then the last class was the two of us together. And he said that he had read this in my book, my History of Women cartoonists, a quote saying that there was a sweetness to women's comics. And he said that was really why they didn't want to publish me, because it was too sweet, because they didn't want to be sweet. They wanted to be nasty and raw and horrible. This was really an enormous compliment, you know, and it not only that, but it told me that he had read my book, which was a big compliment, too. Yeah. So do you feel like when they want to be vulgar, is that just because it, it just gets more readers and it it pays more? Is that basically all that is? Well, no, it's what they wanted to do. It's little boys telling potty jokes. Come on, oh, you, you guys, do you remember when you were horrible little boys? Well, these are just horrible little boys who never grow up. I see. I gotcha. Well, I will say that the early women's comics have their own level of vulgarity. We have to, they also were pushing boundaries quite a bit. Some of them were quite vulgar, yes. Tina, is there anything else you want to say in relation to, well, one one thing I want to ask you about, because I love this story, was where it was a party and the men kept wanting to basically split up and put the wives and women in the kitchen and the men were going to go in another room and talk. And you were a well, cartoonist too. too. What's that? <laughs> you, you keep getting them just a little twisted. This was, um, this was, <laughs> it's, it's to open um, it up for you to tell the this story. Was like 19, this was 1970. And it was a dinner given at uh, Roger Brand and his wife, Michelle, given at their house. And they had invited other cartoonists. And at the time, I was living with Kim Deitch and he was part of the boys club. So I came along. I was invited. But then after dinner, all the women went into the kitchen and the men hung out together, you know, smoking pot and talking. And I was damned. I was a feminist. I was not going to go into the kitchen. With a bunch of women, I was a cartoonist. I wasn't just a wife, you know. So right. I stayed with the male cartoonists. But then what happened was Roger kept leading them out of the room into another room. And I would follow them into that room. And then wow. Roger would lead them into another room. So it was like he kept moving away from me and leading the guys away from me. And I just kept following because I wasn't going to be left behind. <laughs> wow, it was a very weird crazy. situation. That's great. I want to ask you about one other anecdote, which was you were being invited when you were living in New York. You were going to parties. Were they hosted by Archie Goodwin? Yes. Archie and Ann Murphy, his wife. You saw Steve Ditko there? Yes. In oh, a little uh-huh. gray suit. And Bill Everett and Roy Thomas mm-hmm. and Gil Kane and Walt Simonson, a whole blend of the past and the, the current ones. And they yes. were all there at the parties. Talk yes. about that a little bit and some well, of your encounters. Steinberg. It was Flo Steinberg who invited me. I guess the first time I went, there was Roger again, Roger Brand. But he had never invited me. He had never told me about these parties. And he said, what are you doing here? And I said, <laughs> I was invited. And it was great. I mean, I was, you know, they I don't think that they took me seriously as a cartoonist, but they accepted me as a person and were very nice to me. What year was that roughly? That was uh, 69. OK, so you saw so that that was when you saw San Francisco. But when you saw Steve Ditko and Roy Thomas and them, when was, that was in 69? Yes. Oh, OK. How was Steve Ditko? This, was that the only time you saw him around then then or did you see no, him, other saw time? him twice? A little gray man in a little gray suit, standing all alone in the hall with a drink, not talking to anybody. And and Ann Murphy, Archie's wife, came over and said, can I get you anything? And he said, no, I'm fine. And she just kind of looked at me and shrugged. And and he walked. He left shortly after that. And the second time I saw him, he was at Woody's studio. I went to visit Woody and he was there. And Woody said, oh, this is Trina Robbins. This is the girl I told you about, which was a great compliment to me that someone that he actually told someone about me. And all of a sudden, Steve Ditko left. Woody said, you're going? You're going so quick? He said, yeah, I got to go. So so he didn't say much, I guess, those no, two times. No. Did you get the impression that Woody and him were friends? I think they were. Yeah. So Ditko was just, do you think he was just shy? I mean, what's your, I guess it's hard to tell from those few encounters, but. I think he didn't like to hang out with people very much. Yeah, that's okay. No, that's fair. That's interesting. 
one other anecdote on the, in terms of the parties. So I don't know if it was the last party you went to before you moved, but it, there was a party where you brought the brownies. Yes, I made pot brownies. I felt that the parties were too staid, that everyone was just being a little too rigid and too straight. So I made pot brownies and brought them and and I called them Alice B. Topless Brownies because she has a recipe for pot brownies in her Alice B. Topless cookbook that are quite famous. And everybody ate the brownies and was having a wonderful time and just just laughing and really loosening up. And at one point, Roy Thomas said, what did you put in these brownies, Trina? And I said, pot. He said, I thought so. <laughs> That's great. Now, uh, let's talk uh, early 80s. You had basically a, a series of installments of dope of the comic Sax Romer's Dope book, but in comics yes. form. In Eclipse Comics, it was kind of they were released in a serial fashion as you uh, went through the story. You wrote in the graphic novel when I was kind of researching your stuff that you felt like the elements of this story were perfect for a comic book. And you also said that you enjoyed it reading it within the context of his time because there's some racism and misogyny oh, and this God, and that. Yes. But, so racist. Right, but you still value it as an artifact of its time. So I guess a couple of questions. What made it for a perfect comic book? And what advice would you give to younger readers as they look at old stuff like that? And how should they process that stuff? Well, you know, I think we have to realize that by our standards in the past, everyone was racist. It's as simple as that. Really, truly, everyone was racist. I mean, if you read Charles Dickens, if you read Mark Twain, everyone was racist. They mm -hmm. were. You know, they didn't know they were being racist. We have different standards now. But as for dope, it's so visual. I mean, my God, it's got such a great villainess and such a such a great villain and such great characters. And it's just, it's so visual. It's so blood and thunder. Sex Romer was such a good pulpy writer. And it just was made to be adapted into comics. And I was you... so happy to see that come back in print because it's it's lovely. It's it's one of it's my favorite good, things you did. It really holds up. Yeah, I think that in the eighties, I was at my best as an artist. I have to say that we had Tom Orszawski on your podcast. Oh yeah, and he does such a good job on the lettering yes, on that. It's, it's, it's great. It was wonderful. He lived downstairs from us. You know, we lived in the same building, and I could just bring the pages downstairs to Tom. Oh, oh that's great. You mean back then he did? Yes. Okay, okay. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, because that was when he was also lettering X-Men at the same time. He's so it's such a good letterer. Oh, my God. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's great. You were doing a lot of mainstream work then in previous years during this uh, 80s period as well, because you were you did some work for DC, the, the Wonder Woman series, and you also did some Marvel work as well under Jim Shooter, correct? Yes, yes. And my attempt to bring back the girls' comics mm -hmm. uh, with Misty, who was Millie the Model's niece. Well, that was awesome. Trina, I know you're low on time. What we'll do is we will continue this off in a second segment in the future. Jim, any closing comments? I just want to say how much I enjoyed this, but also I look forward to the second section where we talk about Trina as a comic historian and a scholar and an advocate for artists who were underappreciated at the time and unknown until she really started to make us aware of them. Wonderful. Yeah. Thanks so much for joining us here at the Comic Book Historian Podcast. Okay. Talk to you later. Bye. 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 